our Bibles, Genesis 25. Preachers got to get preachy now because uh, we're running a little over on time. So we're going to be opening up a new series here. We're calling it Unfinished. Genesis 25. If you not have a copy of the Bible, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And uh, you can meet me there at Genesis chapter 25. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Uh, so it's the easiest book of the Bible to find in some ways. It was Gandhi who said these words, um, I would be a Christian today if it weren't for Christians. Uh, I think some of us have heard that before. We're familiar with who Gandhi is. The story goes something like this. He shows up to a church, so he goes through that big experience of uh, moving from a place of really not being spiritually interested in Christianity to now Christianity starting to leave an impact in his heart, and he wants to go to church and check it out, and you know what he's met with at the doors of the church. A couple of ushers who said, sorry, we don't accept your kind here. You're not from the high caste or you're not white. And that was true. Gandhi wasn't from the high caste. He wasn't white. And so when he had gone to that church to visit it, he said to himself, I will never entertain the idea of Christianity again because of that inhospitable attitude and the sin of segregation. And the sad thing is, is that Gandhi was really interested in Christianity. He said one of his favorite uh, writings in all of uh, the writings that he had ever interacted with was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this is a sad story, but unfortunately... It's not the only sad story of its kind. Over and over again, you hear stories of people who were interested in the claims of Christ, but then they met a Christian. And uh, the Christian, in some way or another, um, acted in a way that was just not really consistent with the Bible. The Bible says love one another. They didn't really accept them. The Bible says live a pure, up, uh, upright life. They knew this person in the business world and all they saw was lying, cheating, and manipulating. But I've heard a, a, a proverb, and I think this one really puts things into perspective as you think about that dilemma, that question. Don't confuse the finger pointing at the moon with the moon itself. Even though someone points us to the luminosity of the moon, the finger is never actually going to be the moon. The moon is the moon. In the same way, Christians are not Jesus. We are his followers. And uh, we're people. Messy people. People who struggle with sin just like the next person. People who live inconsistent lives just like the next person. And when you think about that dynamic, then you start asking yourself the question, wouldn't it just be easier if God went a different route than people trying to reach people? I don't know about you, but as I think about all the uh, mess that I get into, if I were God, I'd be going after someone else in some other means, some other way to reach the world. It makes me think of a time in my life I was working at Target, and uh, while I was working there, I was a stalker. I brought out all the merch. I made sure that it looked super nice. And I found it very frustrating because one of the hardest aspects of the job was you would go through an aisle and you'd make everything look perfect, and then someone comes down and 
disrupts everything I've just done. I remember it was Christmas season. I just stocked the toy shelves, okay? And this sweet little cherub of a child comes running down the aisle with his arm extended, knocking down every single toy. I think he missed one and actually went back to knock it down again. And, you know, if that doesn't make you mad enough, what ends up happening is the father comes around the aisle bend and then he looks at me with a big grin and says, aren't you glad my son is providing you with job security? Now, I thought many things in that moment. Some of them I will not repeat. I have since repented of those thoughts. But one thing that I did think was, wouldn't this job just be easier if there weren't people? Now, there's one problem with that thought. People are the job. Uh, the father is actually kind of right when he says the son's providing me with job security because I wouldn't have all of those hours to stock and replenish shelves if there weren't people coming through and messing things up. The same thing, in some ways, is true of God's mission. You see, God uses people to reach people. People are the purpose of the mission. People, messy people, inconsistent people, self-willed people, selfish people, people who get off track, and yet, for whatever reason, God in his goodness, grace, mercy, and love uses people to reach people. But remember... God is the moon. His people are the finger pointing to the moon. So as we pick up in this next section of Genesis, we're going to see two patriarchs and think to ourselves, wow, why in the world would God use these guys to advance his story? It just doesn't seem to make sense to me. In fact, how does the story move forward at all with these guys? They're kind of a big mess. And as we're following them, particularly as we look at one of these guys, Jacob, we see that they're a lot like us in some ways. And we learn some important truths about God, like for the fact that God's story isn't necessarily our story, it's his story. And God's going to see the, uh, his story forward. He's going to move it along. It all hinges upon him. It doesn't all hinge upon Jacob. It doesn't all hinge upon me. Another thing that we'll see about this, and this is where we get the series titled, that God's always unfinished. He doesn't stop. He continues to pursue. You see, God is unfinished with the patriarchs. Thank God he's unfinished with me. Thank God he's unfinished with you. And that's what we'll see as we move forward. So we pick up Genesis chapter 25. The story begins off on the right foot. Look with me. Uh, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Let's stop there. So think about the story up to this point. Abraham has gone through a similar situation. Why is it in Genesis that barrenness seems to be a repeated theme? It comes up over and over and over again. 
And then I get to thinking about life as I think about this and ask myself the question, why is it in life that God never seems to hand anyone an easy button? Here you have Isaac. It's not going easy for him. It didn't go easy for Abraham. God seems to just continually put stress and, and, and trial into people's lives. Wouldn't it be nice if God handed us an easy button? You know, you're, you're searching for that job and, and you pray, bam, hit the easy button, and you get the job of your dreams, you get the salary of your dreams, you get all those vacation days that you ever wanted, and the coworkers that you actually like working with. Or what if you're praying about your marriage, you know, your marriage is getting a little bit rocky, bam, you hit that easy button. Suddenly, no more arguments. It's romance all day, every day, and it's tension-free. Or, maybe you've carried a more significant burden in your heart, like praying for a child who has been struggling and you can't do anything to fix it, but you want to be able to fix it. Or someone that you, you love dearly who has a sickness or something of that nature. Don't you just wish you could, bam, hit the easy button and uh, that source of pain would be removed. When you look at the text, it looks like Isaac kind of did hit the easy button. She's barren, he prays, God hears, she conceives. But really, that's not what's going on here. You see, the text opens up and it tells us that he marries Rebekah when he is 40 years old. Verse 26, if you look on ahead in the story, tells us that Rebekah gives birth when Isaac is 60 years old. 20 years of prayer. Friends, that doesn't sound like an easy button sort of dynamic to me. That sounds hard. I find it difficult to pray for two months about something. 20 years faithfully showing up and saying, God, would you move in this situation? Why does God put Isaac through this? I think that God is challenging Isaac to make his faith his own. You see, Abraham's faith cannot be Isaac's faith. Isaac would have to learn how to trust God with fresh faith of his own. Abraham can't do that for Isaac. Because remember, we talked about this last week. God does not have spiritual grandchildren. Each generation is responsible to grab the torch of faith and to carry it on their own. You can't ride the coattails of another person's faith. And so God puts each one of us personally through our own trials, tests. And here's the deal with faith, a faith untested, a faith unstretched, a faith unchallenged is a suspect faith. It's only after you've gone through those things that you demonstrate that you're really in this with God. So Isaac demonstrates that his heart burns for God because he prays for 20 years and he, he doesn't deviate like Abraham did. He doesn't have his Hagar moment. He trusts God for 20 years and Rebecca conceives and gives birth. Now we know in life that as soon as God answers one of our prayers, that just solves all the problems, doesn't it? No more problems arise from there. No, that's not the case, is it? In fact, as 
one prayer is answered, another prayer request is developing. Look at verse 22. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So Rebecca is struggling in pregnancy. Now they say that no pregnancy is easy. Uh, Every pregnancy has its own types of difficulties. I remember when Katie was pregnant with our children, um, she would be sick, literally, from morning to evening through the entire duration of the pregnancy. And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself as she's going through this, God, I am so thankful that men do not carry children. (laughs) And uh, I realized how much better of a Christian she was than I am because we would have one child if... I went through that. But Rebecca, even worse than morning sickness, we we hear of her experience. The term struggle more literally means that the children were smashing together inside of her. I mean, just imagine that. Her statement, why is this happening to me, is a cry for desperation. She's essentially saying, why did I get pregnant in the first place? Or uh, why do I go on living if this is what life is going to be like? And she probably looked at Isaac and said, you did this to me. But even with this fresh new challenge, Rebecca prays. It says that she demonstrates real faith, inquires of the Lord, why is this happening? Verse 23, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided, and the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This prophetic utterance is about the nation of Israel and Edom. These two boys that would come out of her womb would uh, become bitter rivals as nations later on in Israel's history. Indeed, there's a book, a prophetic book, Obadiah, that tells us about how when Babylon was taking the city of Jerusalem, Edom was there assisting. Not Jerusalem, but Babylon. So it's a significant clash that these nations would uh, undergo. The second part of the prophecy must have also shocked Rebecca because in that, God is saying that the the older shall serve the younger. God is basically breaking convention. He's turning cultural norms upside down. It was typical for the younger son to serve the older son. When I was in seminary, I did a paper on this theme, um, the idea of the younger rising above the older. It's called the reversal of primogeniture. Okay, so the next time you're at a party, you throw that out there. People are going to think you're really smart. And if you're ever struggling with insomnia, I've got the paper. You can read it. It's really good. Now, what I learned while studying primogeniture was that it's an iron law. Okay, you, you don't go against this cultural norm. This is just the way things are in this society. Kind of makes me think of the Indian caste system that used to be uh, very much a part of Indian culture. Doesn't matter how hard you work. Doesn't matter what you've done in your life or what you've pursued or the things that you have accomplished. You are what you are. You're born into this. 
the older brother isn't a good leader, too bad. That's just the way fate has resigned you to be. That's the life that you're going to live. There's no bucking this system. It is what it is. But God repeatedly disrupts the natural order of things. This is what God does. One author says it like this, the order of nature is not necessarily the order of grace. Abel offering is accepted over Cain's. Seth line chosen over the older brother's line. Isaac chosen over Ishmael. Judah later on chosen over his older brothers. Why does God do this? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And God even participates in turning the conventional wisdom upside down because the God of the universe comes to earth as a baby. He lives a perfect life and he lays down his life on the cross for others. Friends, this theme that we're seeing here in Genesis is an important theme. Because maybe you have felt in life, I'm not the wisest among us. I'm not the strongest among us. I'm not a part of the upper echelon. I'm never going to get ahead. But not in God's economy. Not in God's universe. God loves to use winklings, wimps, people who come from nothing. He loves rags to riches stories as he's accomplishing his will and his purposes in this world. And thank God that he's like that. So here we see that taking place in the story of Genesis. Isaac and Rebekah starting off on the right foot. But as ten, what tends to happen in life is God takes us and he puts us into the pressure cooker, doesn't he? He gives us those tests, those trials, and we persevere. We lean into God. We, we ask God for his help. But what happens when he lets out the steam and the pressure comes off? Well, then the story sometimes tends to change. So let's look at what happens next. The text picks up verses 24 through 28. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so that they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So here we have these two infamous twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau's name means hairy. He was likely born with a medical condition called hypertrichosis, which has also been called werewolf syndrome. It's that excessive hair growth all over his body. In Genesis 27, uh, Esau was so hairy that Jacob actually has to put sheep's wool on his arms so that when his father grabs the arms, he feels like he's touching Esau. Now, the idea behind the name also because people tend to grow into their names, Esau is also a hairy oaf. He's a little bit of a numbskull. Jacob, on the other hand, is the heel holder, the heel grabber. 
The idea behind this name is someone in a wrestling match or something of that nature tripping someone up in a deceptive way. Jacob grows into his name. He's a deceiver, a trickster, the type of guy who tends to want the right things, but he'll go about getting the right things through the wrong means. His life motto, the end justifies the means. He will compromise his integrity. He will rupture his relationships. He will breed suspicion and hatred and retaliation. I mean, this is the type of guy that Gandhi was talking about. I would be a Christian if it weren't for Christians. But he's also the type of guy that the Bible's talking about because God gets involved in Jacob's life. He changes who Jacob is. If he begins life a trickster, a deceiver, a guy who will do what it takes to get what he wants, he doesn't end that way. God works on the man. God works on the heart. Because God is most interested in what is inside of you, not in what you do. So how did the boys develop this character? Let's read on in the story. We'll learn a little more about them We'll learn about the state of the home. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So here you have two boys, and they couldn't be any more different. Uh, Esau is a man's man. He hunts like an expert. But he really didn't contribute to the family business. He just kind of went out and and brought in exotic flavors to the home. Uh, One writer characterizes Esau well. He says this, There's nothing about Esau's hunting that is necessary or essential for the family. It's just difficult to keep him focused and productive at home. He'd rather roam the open country. He's unsettled, impulsive, undisciplined. Now Jacob, he's civilized. He's the kind of guy who wears nice clothes, speaks in a sophisticated manner. He's level-headed. He's a careful planner, a dependable, consistent guy, and also he's as shrewd as they come. So these boys are different. They don't see anything eye to eye. If Jacob sees a square, Esau sees a rectangle. If one of them wants to go right, the other believes that it's a better idea to head off left. Now, some people say, you know, the Bible's just not really a relevant book. I mean, friends, it doesn't get more relevant than this. I mean, who has ever been incompatible in relationship with someone? And if you've had siblings in your life, you kind of get what we're talking about here, right? Some people can't even sit in the same room with their brother and sister. They don't even understand why they can't sit in the same room with them. It's a classic case of sibling rivalry. Two brothers totally different from one another. And if that wasn't enough, if they weren't just different, Isaac and Rebekah exasperate the problem, don't they? They choose favorites. Dad like that strapping lad that goes out and brings back the meat. Mom, like the boy who helped around the house, who was civilized, who you could introduce to your friends and it would look good. 
What a mess. You ever talk to someone or even personally yourself felt the sting of parents choosing favorites? Oh, it's terrible. It always leads to problems. It's the parent's job to find the gold in each child. It's the parent's job to look at the individual child and see what makes the child tick and why they're different from the other children. And then to say to yourself, the difference in this child is so valuable. This is what God's going to do in and through this child. When we tell a child that they are our favorite or even by our actions demonstrate that they're our favorite, We're telling children that they have to earn our love. And what is love? It's not something that can be earned. It's something that we extend to someone basically mostly out of our own character and not theirs. So what are you, or what does it say of you if someone has to earn your love? And I would say this, what it says to you is, uh, of you, is that you're not a giver, you're a taker. And that's why I want to reflect on Isaac for a little bit. If you've ever read Genesis before, maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't. Does it spend a lot of time talking about Isaac in Genesis? Is there much about Isaac in the book of Genesis? All the other patriarchs, they get a lot of airtime, don't they? Abraham gets something on the order of 13 chapters. Jacob, if you follow his story all the way through to Genesis 50, 25 chapters, half of the book of Genesis. But Isaac, he's just a secondary background character most of the time. The only chapter where it really seems to be an out front character is Genesis chapter 26. Why? Why gloss over the man? I would submit to you that Isaac in his advanced years grew sedentary and apathetic. You have the picture of a father who chooses the son who brings home the food he likes. You you see a man who is so spiritually blind in his advanced years that he wants to lay hands on the wrong son. The son that God didn't prophesy about. I mean, that says it all. He started life on the right foot. He uh, was going after God, but then Isaac sets life on autopilot. This happens so often in the Christian life. We know God. We don't step outside of God's moral boundaries, really. But we also don't do anything of spiritual significance. I mean, who wants to write a story about a man whose main passion in life consists of waiting for the next good meal? Uh, No books are ever uh, written about the person who just purely pursues leisure. There will be no accounts in eternity, no songs about people who just satiated their palate with food. And that was really what they were all about. Indeed, God would rather feature a messy guy like Jacob who at least has a tinge of spiritual hunger for the promises of God than the guy who sat in his tent and ate himself spiritually blind. Isaac's downgrade haunts me. It haunts me because I live in this culture. Sometimes I just want to look in the mirror and and slap myself in the face and, and ask the question, are you awake? 
Are you doing anything for God? Are you showing up day after day, giving today your best? Because you can't get by on yesterday's best. You can only get by on today's best. And it concerns me for churches. Churches can downgrade. Churches who who started off with a burning passion for the great commission of God, but later fell into spiritual lethargy because everything became about the people in the building instead of the people outside of the building. I've been reading a book by Tom Rayner called Autopsy of a Deceased Church, and in it he notes 100,000 churches in America are either very sick or dying. I shared last week 4,000 churches close their doors every year. Friends, that's one church per hour, basically. While we are worshiping God this morning, one church closes. Why? Because we've developed Isaac syndrome. Church becomes all about my preferences. I I ride the wave of the past. Look at what God did here 20 years ago. Wasn't it so significant? Don't I wish I could go back to that? And I've just got to say that was a beautiful thing, but you can't. Because God's working right now. And I have to be active in pursuing him right now. Isaac, turn off the TV. Isaac, get off the couch. Isaac, stop stuffing your face. Isaac, your boys are falling apart under your nose. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, verse 29, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. So here you have Harry coming back from his long trip empty-handed. He's dog-tired, he's hungry, a smell comes wafting from the tent of Jacob, and like Pavlov's dog, he's salivating. The word for cooking in the Hebrew language sounds a lot like the word hunting, hunting, zayed, cooking, Zid. So Esau's been out Zayid hunting for game. Jacob is Zid hunting for Esau in the tent. He knows the man. He knows his character. He knows what he's like. Impulsive, rash, lacks insight. He is hunting him by cooking. He's laying a trap. Esau comes in like a spiritual caveman. The Hebrew sounds like this. Let me hork down some of the red stuff, the red stuff. Esau, use your words. And please and thank you are always nice, aren't they? The nickname Edom literally means red stuff. I mean, how would you like to be known as the Neanderthal that walked in the tent with incomplete sentences? Jacob is quick to set the trap. Sell me your birthright. And, and if you know anything about birthright in this day and age, it's everything. He's asking for the right to be the leader of the home. He's asking for control over the family assets and the respect of being first. And he's also asking, as a child in this particular family, for the blessings of God in his life. 
You see, as you look at the chronology of this story in Genesis, it's interesting. Jacob and Esau knew their grandfather Abraham 15 years. As boys, they would have grown up sitting on his lap. And he would have told him the story about Ur of the Chaldeans and how God had called him out of there. And, and the story about Isaac's birth. Your grandmother and I prayed in our advanced years of life for this son to come for 25 years. And they would have heard about the nature of the blessings. Descendants, land, blessing. Esau knew these things. But he had no appetite for the things of God. If Isaac had grown spiritually aloof in his older years, Esau had grown spiritually disinterested. Esau said, verse 32, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, that phrase, I am about to die, probably means something along the lines of, well, I'm uh, out in the fields risking my life, doing the manly things. I'll probably die before these so-called uh, promises of God come true. So what good is this birthright to me? Who cares about it? Jacob, being the shrewd man he is, will swear it. Because someone, when they made an oath in this day, well, it was binding. It's not a, a, real, a frivolous little thing like we kind of throw out there. Oh, I promise I'll be there when we don't show up. Esau swore and listened to the verbs. Ate, drank, rose, went. Quick. That's how little the promise of God meant to him. Ate, drank, rose, met. I mean, what good are the promises of God? I, I have a need right now. I'm hungry. I need some of that red stuff. I need to fill my stomach. Now, Moses doesn't often make commentaries. He writes in the book of Genesis, but uh, he tends to let the story speak for itself. But look what he says there in verse 34. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Later in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews warns us, make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance even though he begged with bitter tears. Now, I don't want you to hear the warning of the book of Hebrews and just let it go in one ear and out the other. I don't want you to gloss over that. Warning signs are meant to be observed, examined, considered, responded to. If there's a sign on the road as you're bombing down 80 miles per hour that says, warning, bridge out ahead. What happens if you disregard the sign and just keep going? Sure, for a while you keep moving along. Sure, for a while there's no thought or care. But then there's a point where there's no turning back. If you keep going, you meet your demise. 
Friends, this is a warning that we read in this passage of Scripture. Isaac starts off praying. Rebecca starts off praying. Then there's a downgrade, and then spiritual things are no longer a focus on the home. There's a exotic food, a sedentary life of leisure. And then his favorite son grows up, and he has no appetite for the things of God. That's a problem. What does it say about us if we're not hungry at all for the things of God? You know, Jesus didn't say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the comfortable, blessed are the luxurious, blessed are those who attend church occasionally, but really don't care that much about the things of God. He said what? Blessed are those who realize their need for him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does your palate crave? What are you hungry for right now? Is it the next big trip? The next golf outing? The next promotion at work? The next compliment about how you look physically or the lifestyle that you're leading? The next Netflix binge? The next sexual encounter? The next extreme thrill? The next financial win? The next accolade? Or does your heart crave God. God is asking you this morning to examine your appetites. When was the last time you were hungry for the things of God? When was the last time that you sat down in the morning and you said, I just want to meet with God in this place of prayer and devotion? When was the last time you said to yourself, I feel hunger pangs in my life to please God with what I'm doing? And you went to bed that night and you said, God, were you happy with what I did today? When was the last time you felt famished to go share the gospel of Jesus Christ with another person? When were you hungry for God? Was it last week? Last month? Last year? Don't misunderstand me. You might be hearing me right now and, and hearing, you know, he's talking about if I do anything to enjoy life, well, then I must not be hungering after God. And you couldn't be any further from the truth. You can lead an incredible life while hungering after God. Because you can bring God into your leisure activities. You can bring God onto your vacation and, and you can get that rest that you need so that you can get back into the mission of God. You can bring God into work for the sake of his glory. But any time one of those things becomes ultimate, well then, now we're heading for that warning sign. Now we're in trouble. Jacob, he's different. Complicated, mind you, but different. There's a trace amount of spiritual hunger in the man. You see, when Jacob heard of the, the promises of God, it ignited a spark in his heart, a hunger in his heart for the things of God. And God, God can work with trace amounts, my friends. He really can. So maybe this morning, as you've heard about these two boys, God's putting a hunger there in your heart. There's a, a craving that's starting to develop, a desire for him. Feed it. Feed that hunger. And the best way that you feed it, according to the Bible, it begins with coming into a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus. 
You feed that craving by trusting that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again to new life. And then the Bible says that God puts a a hunger creator in your heart, the Holy Spirit of God, and he comes in and he resides and he dwells in you. And that appetite just starts growing until you become this voracious animal for the things of God. You want to do his work, his way. You want to follow him. You get a passion for him. Friends, feed the beast. Feed the beast. Let's pray.